you have not um, gotten one of these wristbands undivided, uh, if you, for some reason you didn't get one, we encourage you to go to the information center um, and ask them for one. So we have adult and child sizes. So, okay, we're good, son? All right, so, well, good morning. God is good and all the time. And so I, I trust that you have your outlines also. You can get on our app and the outlines on there as well. But um, let's go ahead and let's pray and then let's, let's dive into God's word. Yeah? Okay. Father in heaven, thank you once again for giving us the, the blessing, the honor, the privilege of gathering together and Lord, to call upon your name, to worship you and, and Lord, just to feel your presence in this place. We are so blessed, Lord, to, to be here and, Lord, just to worship and to pray and, and to love you and to love one another and to dig in your word and to hear what you have to say to us today, Lord, that it would change and transform our lives, that your word's not just for information but for transformation. And so, Lord, speak to us today, and I decrease that you would increase. I empty myself of myself, so fill me with yourself, Lord, that everything that I say and do, every thought that enters my mind would be of you and not of me. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. So if you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Chapter 15, verses 12 through 34 is today's text. That's 15, 12 through 34 is today's text. We're now in part 28 of our series, Undivided. Undivided. Now, as always, before we even dive into the text, I want to do a quick review from last week's text verses 1 through 11, and Paul was making a case, his case, right, his case for the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and he begins by pointing out the prominence, say prominence, the prominence of the resurrection, that the gospel he preached to them had as its bedrock the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then he pointed out the prediction, say prediction, of the resurrection, that the resurrection of Jesus Christ was validated by the scriptures, that Christ died for our sins, was buried, right? Was buried and raised on the third day according to what? The scriptures, the word of God. And then he pointed out the proofs, say proofs, of the resurrection. What Paul does, Paul gives eyewitness evidence that the resurrection did in fact, of Jesus Christ, did in fact actually happen. He appeared to Peter, to 12, to 500 at one time, to James, the apostles, and to Paul himself. That now brings us to today's text, and the title of my message today is What If? Say that. Say it with more enthusiasm. Say it. What if? Three points from today's text. If you're ready, say yes. Number one is this, the protest against the resurrection. Write that down, the protest against the resurrection. And we know that in the Corinthian church, the doctrine of the resurrection is under attack, right? Now, I want to pose this question. And the question is this, what if, what if Jesus had not been raised from the dead? And I want you to think about that again. What if Jesus had not been raised from the dead? Now, Paul gave evidence, right? He gave evidence of the resurrection in the previous verses. But, but what if? What if Jesus, okay, wasn't resurrected from the dead? What if the resurrection never happened? And you see, I believe Paul is doing what he's doing here in this section of this chapter is raising the question, what if Jesus had not been raised from the dead in order to show how much hangs on the doctrine of the resurrection of Christ? Now, what Paul does, Paul points out seven results 
if, seven results, if the resurrection never happened. So I want you to follow me here, okay? If it never happened, if it never happened, the resurrection, if it never happened, we have no foundation. We have no foundation if the resurrection never happened. And I want you to look at verses 12 to 13 with me. And Paul writes, but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even what? Christ has been what? Raised. So Paul is saying to deny a general resurrection of all believers is to deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now listen, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then his death was the unfortunate end to a wasted life. And that, friends, his, his teachings mean absolutely nothing to us. If he didn't rise from the dead, then, then our belief system is nothing more than another religion that offers no hope and no life to anyone. If he didn't rise from the dead, then as believers, listen now, we have no hope. Really, think about it. We have no hope of life after death, no hope of eternal life. And if he, Jesus, didn't rise from the dead, our belief system is dead. And we're among the greatest of, of fools. And we have no foundation to stand on or to live by. The very core, the very doctrine, the very foundation of our Christian faith means absolutely nothing. No resurrection, then Jesus Christ is still what? Dead. Which means we have no foundation to stand on. If it never happened, then our preaching is useless. Write that down. Our preaching is useless. It's vain. Look at verse 14a. And if Christ, Paul says, has not been raised, our preaching is useless. The word useless or vain means without content. Without content. It means all that we have learned has come to absolutely nothing. And so if this is true, then it doesn't matter how, how much Bible knowledge we have, how many scriptures that you and I can memorize, how many messages we can preach, how many people we can witness to, and how many revivals and altar calls we have, it doesn't really matter. If the tomb is not empty, listen now, friends, if the tomb is not empty, there's no gospel to preach and no Savior to preach about. If you think about it, as Christians, we're just spinning our wills, just wasting our times. We have no hope. In fact, the Bible is a lie if he had not resurrected from the dead. It's a lie, so we might as well just throw our, our Bibles away. We might as well just quit coming to church if that's true. If it never happened, here, listen now, our faith is useless. Not only our preaching, but also our faith. Verse 14b, and so is your faith, Paul says, so is your faith. It's useless. If Jesus, listen now, is still dead, then all of our praying, all of our serving, all of our worshiping and witnessing and studying the word and church attendance has, listen, has all been a waste of our time. Our Christian faith is the greatest joke of all time. If it never happened, we are false witnesses. Write that down. We are false witnesses. Now I want you to look at verses 15 through 16. Paul says, more than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead, but he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. 16, for if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been, what, raised either. If there is no resurrection, then guess what? Paul and the other apostles are liars. Why? Because, friends, the cross and the resurrection were the heart of their message. And we're liars. 
We're liars, friends, as well if Jesus didn't rise from the dead because the cross and the resurrection is at the very heart of our message, right? If it never happened, listen now, listen now, our faith is without forgiveness. Our faith is without forgiveness. Write that down. Look at verse 17 with me. Our faith is without forgiveness. Verse 17, Paul writes, and if Christ has not been raised, our faith is futile. You are still, listen to what he says, you are still in your what? Sins. If that's true, if that's true, then we're, we're no better off than the worst of sinners. Our sins would never be forgiven. And friends, we would, we would be a people with no hope of salvation. We would never know what it would feel like to be redeemed, to be made clean, to have our guilt wiped away. By the way, the word futile means that which produces no results. That which produces no results. In other words, it's a promise with no fulfillment, a trip with no destination, a story with no end, a dream that never comes true, and a game with no winners. If Christ is still in the tomb, if he is, then we're still lost. We're hell bound, still in our sins. We're not forgiven. No resurrection no salvation. A dead Savior cannot save anybody. A dead Messiah is no Messiah, right? So without the resurrection to place one's faith in Jesus would do absolutely nothing for us. Christianity is a big fraud. If it never happened, our death is without deliverance. Think about that. Our death is without deliverance. And I want you to look at verse 18 with me. Our death is without deliverance. Verse 18, then those also who have fallen asleep, those who have died, fallen asleep refers to died in Christ, are lost. How sad would it be to discover that when we die, that when you and I, when we die, that's it. That's the end. No eternity, no Jesus, no reuniting with loved ones who've gone on before us, that this life is all there is. That all who are dead will stay dead forever. No hope. No future to anticipate. If it never happened, our life is without significance. Write that down. Our life is without significance. Again, our life is without significance. Look at verse 19 with me. Paul says, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be what? Pitied more than all men. In other words, we have lived our lives as believers. We have lived our lives in vain. We're fools of the resurrection never happened. Our life means nothing. And because our life means nothing, then there's no purpose, no significance. And we're, we're, we're miserable than, than all people. If this is true, then listen, there's no God to save us. There's no God to hear our prayers. There's no God to forgive our sins. There's no real purpose for living. And we might as well just bring the missionaries home, right? Might as well do that. Might as well close the doors to every church. Might as well just throw away all the Bibles. Stop tithing, stop giving, stop singing, stop serving. We have wasted our lives in living for Jesus if that were true. Now, how sad it would be. What a tragedy it would be to come to the end of my life that as a pastor to find out that what I was preaching wasn't true. That I misled you. Listen, if there's no resurrection, friends, listen, if there's no resurrection, then we're in trouble. We need psychiatric help, right? We're the laughingstock of the world. But thank God, someone say, thank God. 
Paul doesn't end with verse 19. Don't you love God for that? Don't you love him for that? He doesn't. Paul doesn't end with verse 19. The question is, is there any hope, any reason to believe the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Well, look at Paul's answer. Verse 20. But Christ, two best words in this chapter. But Christ has what? Indeed been raised from the dead. I need someone to agree with me and say amen. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. I want to stop there. Now, after pointing out the seven results, if the resurrection never happened, I believe what Paul does, he bursts out in praise, bursts out in praise, and states for the record the amazing truth that Jesus did, in fact, rise from the dead. Now, if you're saved, say amen. We can rejoice and we can stand, listen now, and live with confidence because we know that he, Christ, is not dead. But in fact, raised from the dead tells us that he's alive. Right? He's alive. So Paul says, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits, say first fruits, of those who have fallen asleep, those who've died in Christ. Now, what does first fruits mean? Well, first of all, we know that Jesus wasn't the first person to be raised from the dead. We know that, right? But he was the first to be raised from the dead to never die again. That's what it means, first fruits. Got it? First fruits. To be raised from the dead, never to die again. Therefore, he is our, listen, listen now, he is our entrance fee to the resurrection. He paid our admission to the resurrection. His resurrection is proof. It's, in other words, down payment. Say down payment that we will be raised from the dead. But I also want to point out to you that first fruits also is an Old Testament concept from Leviticus chapter 23. Go home and read it. Leviticus chapter 23. And during the Feast of Unleavened Bread at Passover time, the Jewish farmer would go out into his fields when the crop was first coming in. The crop was first coming in and, and, and would take a small sheaf of grain that was ripe and he would take that grain to the temple where the priest would wave it before the Lord. This was a pledge or a guarantee of more grain to come. Paul's point is this. Jesus is the first fruits. That is the first of more to come. If you got it, say, got it. Jesus' resurrection is a guarantee of the future resurrection of Christians. Now, in verses 12 through 19, 12 through 19, we looked at the what if, right? The what if. But verse 20 changes all that from what if to but Christ, right? And now we can do away with the what if because Jesus Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. And because he lives, say that, say that. Because he lives, all of those negatives I just spoke to you about are now transformed into positives. Got it? So therefore, because he lives, because he's been resurrected from the dead, our foundation is firm. Someone say amen to that. Jesus lives and Christianity stands as the only valid means whereby a lost sinner can be saved. Not only that, friends, our preaching is genuine. Our preaching is genuine. It's not useless or vain. We have a gospel to preach. Listen now, because we have a risen Savior to preach about. 
Also, our faith is alive. If your faith is alive, say amen, please. Okay, It's a living faith, not a dead faith. A living faith, why? Because, listen now, he lives. Therefore, praying and witnessing and serving and studying the word and worshiping and coming to church is not a waste of our time. It's not time wasted. It's time invested. It's time invested, listen now, in the kingdom of God. Also, our witness is true. It's not false. It's true. What we say about Jesus is true. How about this? Our forgiveness is accomplished. Our forgiveness is accomplished. We're forgiven. We're washed by his blood. Our sin, our guilt, and our shame has been washed away as far as the east is from the west. Also, our death has deliverance. Because he's alive, our death has deliverance. We have eternal life. We have a place in the presence of Jesus in heaven. And one day, we will be reunited with those who have gone on before us. Death no longer, say that, death no longer has a hold on us. That's going to be our focus next week. And how about this? Finally, our life has significance. Because he is alive, because he's been resurrected from the dead. My life, your life, as believers, has significance. It has meaning. It has purpose, right? We're not miserable. We're joyful. We're not pitied. We're blessed. I need a witness. So lesson. Ready for the lesson? Here's the lesson. Because Jesus lives, because he does, life is worth the living. Can I get a witness? Life is worth the living because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Sing with me. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds a future and life is worth the living just because he lives. Do you believe that? Come on, give him a hand clap if you believe that. Because Jesus lives, life is worth the living. You have a life worth living for. All right? All right, so quit acting like a dead believer. There should be life to you. People should see and say, man, they are full of life. Amen? The protest against the resurrection, number two, is the purpose of the resurrection. I have two sub-points for you. The, the purpose of the resurrection. First of all, here we go. It arranges our justification. It arranges our justification. This is the purpose, okay? The purpose of the resurrection, first of all, it arranges our justification. Look at verses 21 and 22. Paul writes, for since death came through a man. Got to get that. Since death came through a man, the resurrection, say resurrection, of the dead comes also through a man. Verse 22. For as in Adam all die. Did you get that? So in Christ, say in Christ, all will be what? Made 
alive. So what Paul does here, Paul uses an analogy between Adam and Jesus, the first Adam and the last Adam. So I want you to follow me here, okay? The first Adam, the head of the human race, brought spiritual and physical death to all mankind because of his sin. If you got it, say got it. The tragedy of death came through the man, Adam. But the triumph, say triumph, of resurrection came through the man, Jesus Christ. The last Adam, Jesus Christ, the last Adam brought life through resurrection and repaired the evil done by the first Adam. If you got it, say got it. Romans 4.25, write it down. Romans 4.25. He, speaking of Jesus, the last Adam, was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life, listen now, get this now, for our justification. Good place to say amen. Our justification, listen now, rests on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So the purpose of the resurrection is this. It arranges our justification. The second sub-point is this. It assures our resurrection. It assures our resurrection. And I want you to look at verse 23 with me. But each in his own turn, Christ the first fruits, we already established what that was, right? Then when he comes, say when he comes, those who belong to him. So Jesus is our guarantee. Say that. His resurrection assures, guarantees our resurrection. Now I believe, okay, I believe Paul is referring to the rapture of the church. So I want you to write this down. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. I'm going to read it to you. And I want you to listen up here. He says, Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who've fallen asleep, those who've died, or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe, say we believe, that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. Verse 16. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Someone say amen. After that, we who are still alive and our left will be what? Caught up together. Well, I hope I'm, I'm, I'm part of that, right? That'd be really cool. With them in the clouds to meet who? The Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord, what? Forever. And then Paul closes verse 18 with this. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Amen? Hey, listen, he's coming back. He's coming back for us. Are you with me? I know the world is, I mean, it's just, it's horrible. There's so much evil in this world, right? This world is decaying, corrupted. But guess what? You, you keep fighting that good fight. He's coming back someday for us. Okay, he's going to take us home to be with him. Come on, somebody say amen. So the purpose of his resurrection it arranges our justification. We're justified 
and it assures our resurrection. Amen? So we have the protest against the resurrection. Then Paul points out the purpose of the resurrection. And number three, the program, say program, of the resurrection. The program of the resurrection. And here what Paul is doing, Paul is showing us how God, I love this, how God ultimately is ultimately responsible for this whole chain of events that begins with Christ's resurrection and that culminates in the destruction of death. Are you guys with me? So following verses 24 through 28. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he, speaking of Jesus, he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. Verse 25. For he must reign, speaking of Jesus, until he has put all what? His enemies under his what? So I believe Paul could be referring here to Psalm 110, verse 1. Psalm chapter 110, verse 1, where, where the psalmist writes, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies, what, a footstool for your feet. So he could be referring to that. Verse 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is what? It's there in your Bible, is what? Death, right, death. Verse 27, for he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, speaking of Jesus, it is clear that this does not include God himself who put everything under Christ. Verse 28. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made what? Subject to him, speaking of God the Father, who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. Now, I don't have time to expound on this. I did when I did the whole, I did what, a year and something months in the book of Revelation, five years ago. Okay, I do plan on doing it again and maybe in two more years. Okay, so I don't have time to expound on this, but here Paul's referring to the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ in Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 6. Revelation 20, 1 through 6. Now we know this, right? At the end of the tribulation, Jesus and his saints, that's us, say that's us, will return to earth and he will establish his kingdom for a thousand years where we will reign with him. Someone say amen. Now, at the very end of the thousand years, Jesus will ultimately put down, say, say put down, the final rebellion inspired by Satan after his release. You see that in Revelation chapter 20, Revelation 20, verses 7 through 10, which Jesus will crush and finally and forever put all enemies under his feet. Now, the last enemy, listen now, which is death, will not be completely destroyed until after the great white throne judgment. The great white throne judgment, Revelation 20, verses 11 through 14, Revelation 20, 11 through 14, where all the dead, listen, all the dead, all those who rejected Jesus Christ will be resurrected and then judged and cast into the lake of fire. And then death itself will be cast into the lake of fire. Death is the last enemy. Are you guys with me? That will be destroyed. After Jesus puts all things under his feet, stay with me now, after he puts all things under his feet, he will then turn the kingdom over to the Father. And then the eternal state, the new heaven and the new earth, will be ushered in 
And that's Revelation chapter 21 and 22. If you got it, you got it. Now notice that this verse gives a brief, rare look into the relationship within the Godhead itself. You see, the eternal Son of God, Jesus, eternal Son of God, is fully God, right? Come on, He's fully God, right? And completely equal with God, right? The Father. He's fully God, completely equal with God, right? In His divine status. We agree with that, right? However, during Jesus' earthly ministry, at both his first and his second coming, there is a sense in which he is fulfilling a different function. Say function. In carrying out the will of God the Father. God the Son, God the Father are equal in status, just different in function. Got it? And that's what Paul is writing here. That after Jesus accomplished what God the Father wanted him to accomplish, right, he'll hand it over to God the Father. Got it? And usher in the new heaven and the new earth. Equal in status. Got it? Just different in function. If you got it, say got it. So now let's, let's kind of look at the, well, let's not kind of, let's look. Let's look at the last verses of our text, okay? Verse 29, because here Paul, he, he says some things like, what are you saying, Paul, here? Why are you, why are you bringing this here now? Verse 29, now if there is no resurrection, what will those... Who, what will, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? So it seems like there was this practice going on. There was a practice that if someone was converted and then died before they had a chance to be baptized, that a living person would be baptized on behalf of the person who had died. There was this thing going on there in the Corinthian church, a practice. And by the way, the Mormons developed an entire doctrine on the basis of this one verse alone. So Paul's like this. Paul's like this. He's saying, okay, so you say you don't believe in the resurrection. You guys are saying you don't believe in the resurrection. So why do you even bother with baptism on behalf of those who died? Now, it's obvious that Paul is not endorsing that practice. He's not. He's just illustrating his argument that the resurrection is real, okay? So he's saying, if you don't believe in the resurrection, then why are you baptizing people? Why are you standing, right, in baptism to those who have passed on? He says, it's ridiculous. He goes, the resurrection is real. So you're pretty much validating what I'm saying. It's real. The resurrection is real. Life beyond this life is real. Got it? Verse 30. And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? So Paul's point is, is this. If there is no resurrection, as Paul's saying, of the dead, why should they, him, and those around him, and those apostles put themselves in danger for something that's not true? Why, why do they bother to serve Christ? Why? Why would they place their life in danger for the gospel? But there is a resurrection, right? But there is a resurrection. And Paul gave evidence, the evidence. He gave evidence to the resurrection. Okay, he gave evidence to that by the way he lived his life all out for the gospel. Got it? If you look at Paul's life, man, he was all out, right? All out, man, for the gospel. David Guzik said this. 
Most of us are so concerned about living comfortable lives here on earth that our lives give no evidence of the resurrection. Paul lived such a committed Christian life, people could look at him and say, there's no way he would live like that unless there was a reward waiting for him in heaven. So here's the lesson. You ready? You ready? Here we go. Live all out for the gospel. Live all out for the gospel. Do you believe in the gospel? We are here today because of the gospel. We're saved because of the gospel, right? So shouldn't we live all out for the gospel? I'm going to tell you, friends, if you're a believer, make your faith known. Make it known, whether through word or through deed. Make your faith known that you would get up every single morning. Seriously, friends, get up every single morning and say, God, use me to expand your kingdom. I want to be used by you. I want to share the good news. I want to share the gospel. I want to make a difference in this world by the power of your Holy Spirit to share the gospel with somebody. Are you living all out for the gospel? When people look at your life, would they say, man, they're living, he, she's living all out for the gospel, man. Look at them. Huh? That God would use me, he would use you to expand his kingdom. Can I get an amen? Verses 31 and 32, I die every day. When Paul says, I, I die every day, he's referring to his daily exposure to danger. Got it? I mean that, brother, just as surely as I glory over you in Christ Jesus our Lord. So he's boasting in the Corinthian believers. He's also boasting in Jesus. And so what's he boasting about? That daily he's exposed to danger. Verse 32, if I fought wild beasts in Ephesus for merely human reasons, what have I gained? Now, I don't believe Paul's referring to literal wild beast, but rather referring to the savage opposition that he faced. In fact, 2 Corinthians 11, verses 23 to 28, right there, it tells you the opposition that Paul faced. 2 Corinthians 11, 23 and 28, go home and read that. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus for merely human reasons, what have I gained? Then he goes on to say this, if the dead are not raised, if they're not, if they're not raised, what does he say? Let us eat and drink for tomorrow what? We die. So what, what it's saying is this, denying the resurrection results in a hedonistic philosophy of life. In other words, if there's no life after death, if there's no life after death, then, then you might as well party now. You might as well eat, drink, and be merry because this life is all you get, man. So go for it. In other words, there's no purpose in life. Just eat, drink, and be merry, and it's over. But if there is a resurrection, and we know there is, say there is, it's worth enduring difficulties on this side of death so we can enjoy more of what's on the other side. Yeah? And Paul's point is this. As Christians, whatever you and I face in life, right? And we do face things in life. Whatever you and I face in life, it's the hope of the resurrection, say the hope. The hope of the resurrection that strengthens us and motivates us. Why? Because we know that this life is not the end. You see, it was the hope 
of the resurrection that strengthened Paul to endure severe trials and persecutions. He knew, Paul knew, this life was not the end. I mean, what did he write in Philippians 1.21? Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ and to what? Die is gain. For me to live is Christ, right? What a, what a great way to live and what a great way to die. It's a win-win situation, Yeah. So as Christians, if you're saved, say amen. As Christians, we should realize that a far better life awaits us. If you're saved, say amen. Get this. Knowing the truth about the resurrection should affect the way we live. Knowing the truth about the resurrection should affect the way you and I live. We should live for Christ. All out for Christ. Okay? Some of you say, well, I would die for Christ. Okay, that's great. But hey, would you live for him? The resurrection, friends, the truth about the resurrection should affect the way that we live. For me to live is Christ. Man, it's to live for Christ. I'm going to live for Christ. To die is gain. If I, if I live for Christ, praise God. If I die for Christ, praise God. I'm in a win-win situation. Yeah? Verse 33, do not be misled. And then he says this. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts what? Good character. So Paul, listen, Paul is quoting, some of you guys don't even know this, right? But Paul is quoting from a comedy in Greek literature. This verse was a common proverb of the day. And the Corinthians knew that because they came from a pagan background. So what Paul's doing here, he's using their own words to warn them. Bad company corrupts good character. You see, the Corinthian believers were being influenced by non-Christian skeptics who persuaded them to enjoy worldly pleasures. Just go for it. Enjoy worldly pleasures because they believed there was no resurrection. There was no heaven. And Paul is like, okay, your, your, your wrong view, he's talking to the believers here now, your wrong view of the resurrection not only has been influenced by bad company you keep, by skeptics you keep, but you're corrupting others in the congregation as well. And Paul's saying, stay away, simply saying, stay away from these people. They're corrupting you. They're undermining the firm foundation, listen now, that has been established to you. What's the firm foundation? The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then he rebukes them, verse 34. Continues to rebuke them. Come back to your senses as you ought. I want to stop there. In other words, what Paul's saying is this. Wake up. Wake up. Think with discernment and come back to the reality of the truth. That Jesus, what's the truth? That Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead and that you, as you die as a believer, one day will be resurrected from the dead. See, it's as if they were asleep and had become morally and doctrinally lazy. And they weren't seeing the implications of the, of the denial of this important doctrine of the resurrection. So he says, come back to your senses as you ought. Then he says this, and stop sinning. Man, Paul, don't play, huh? For there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. Now notice, I want you to notice, Paul doesn't hesitate to call their behavior what it is. He calls it sin. Amen? In other words, it's a sin. Paul simply saying to them, it's a sin to deny the truth of the resurrection of the dead and the resurrection of Christ. 
right? That's an essential, right? Listen, church, these believers were continually and habitually living in a state of ignorance about the truths of God. They were keeping company, say company, with those who were influencing and persuading them to deny the power of God in being able to raise the dead to life again. That being said, question, what kind of company do you, do you keep? I want you to think about that. What kind of company do you think? Excuse me, do you keep? Do they lead you away from Christ? Huh? Or closer to Christ? They bring you closer, lead you away, or bring you closer to Christ? Are you influencing them, or are they influencing you? Now, I have people ask me, Pastor, is it wrong as a believer to have non-Christian friends? Is it wrong to hang out with those who are not believers? And my answer is, that's not wrong. I mean, they're the mission field. You ought to be witnessing somebody, right? They're the mission field. But here's the question. As you're hanging out with them, who's influencing who? Jesus hung out with sinners. But Jesus always set the agenda. Jesus was the influencer, not the other way around. Are you guys with me? So if you're hanging out with non-believers, my question is, who's influencing who? And if you're not influencing them and they're influencing you, there's something wrong. Are you guys with me? Bad company corrupts what? Good character. That's that saying, birds of a feather, what? Flock together. So who are you flying with? Who are you flying with? Hey, you cannot soar with the eagles if you're running with the turkeys. You can't. You can't. So question, or should I say, if you're safe, say amen. Listen, who we choose as our friends, who we keep company with, who we run with, will affect our thoughts, our habits, and our lifestyle. Are you with me? Proverbs 13.20 says this, Proverbs 13.20, Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. Get that? So in light of what we've learned today, question, where, were, where, where will you and your eternal body spend eternity? Think about that. Where will you and your eternal body spend eternity? Well, that, that will only be determined by what you do with Jesus Christ in this life. The choice is yours. And I'm going to close with this. John 11, 25 and 26. John 11, 25 and 26. Jesus said this. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though what? He dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Then he says this. Do you believe this?